Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's so lovely to be at your house, your place of work, in your car, driving along. Thank you for having us on. It's Radley Check Radio. Real talk with Rodney Hyde, and oh my goodness, I have been suffering this past, oh, I don't know, 10 days. I thought I had the worst flu, man flu, I called it, and I couldn't seem to chuck it. I thought, what is wrong with me? And turns out it was hay fever. Had I figured out it was hay fever, someone said, oh, I think you've got hay fever. I took an antihistamine. i got to tell you, I don't know what that is. I normally don't take tablets, but... I was so ill, I popped the antihistamine, 15 minutes, I was better, I slept for the first time in days properly, and I feel like a million bucks, still got a bit of a cough, still got a bit of a runny nose and sore eyes, but so much better, oh my goodness, for those people that have suffered hay fever all their lives, I now know what it's like, um, we've got a we've got a good show as always uh, coming up. Uh, we've got Clem, who's a listener, and she responded to my call to come on and explain to us the keeping of hens and how to look after hens. We're going to learn about chicken coops and the care and what hens need and the pluses and minuses of keeping hens. And then a little controversy. We have along Solomon Tor Kilson. It's an interesting name, Solomon, as in good King Solomon, and Tor Kilson, T-O-R hyphen K-I-L-S-E-N. And we're going to be talking about the South Island independence movement, cutting the cable, setting the mainland free, floating the North Island away. What do you think of that for an idea? What would that mean? How would that work? Is it possible? 
oh my goodness, that's quite a story. That's quite a challenging thought. Well, we're going to be talking about that with Solomon, who is uh, promoting the idea and has been doing so for a number of years. So he knows the arguments in and out. We're going to jump start it. So there you go. Text me 2057. I feel a cough coming on. Email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can give us a text at 2057. Email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. I do love having your feedback of all shapes and sizes, but I got the very best feedback ever for my whole time on the show uh, this week, which I put a call out because I was wondering about raising hens and whether it's hard work or easy. And what do you do if you're a bit scared of hens like me? I am a bit scared of hens. I don't know. They look at me and I think that it's like, a I don't know, is it some dinosaur staring back at me? There's something about their eyes and then their beaks and their funny ears. But anyway, they lay beautiful eggs and we go through a lot of eggs and everyone knows you had to go along, you only get a carton of eggs, cost you an arm and a leg, take a mortgage out to just feed the kids and eggs. So I was wondering about raising hens for eggs but I didn't quite know how to do it. And I put a call out. Can you imagine it? Straight away, we had a listener saying, oh, I can help you with this. Well, here she is. Good morning, Clem. Good morning, Rene. Um, Do you listen to RCR? Yes, uh, when I can. You know, I Good. have to work out for children's, but yes, otherwise I do. And you enjoy it? Yes, I really enjoy it. It's really interesting, the diversity of discussion and subjects. Uh, it's really interesting. I'm always learning. Great. And um, do you tend to listen to the replays or listen to it live? What's, or a bit of both? A bit of both because uh, sometimes I listen to the live and I, it doesn't fit my mood. And sometimes I listen to a replay because I'm learning something on the subject and I know I can stop and take it back on if I, I need to. So it's a bit of mix. It's really good. Good for you. Now, where were you from originally? From France. Which part of France? Um, not a good subject. I've been traveling quite a bit, so I'm a bit from everywhere. Oh, really? And you have a French husband? Yes, I do. And what brought you to New Zealand? Why New Zealand? All the countries in the world, you decided to leave France. Why, why throw the dart and hit New Zealand? Um, I didn't meet my husband in French. I met my husband in New Caledonia. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a neighbor place to New Zealand. But we actually traveled back to France. And from there, uh, we tried to settle in Switzerland. But in Switzerland, um, it didn't work. So we were looking for an environmental friendly country uh, with mountains. 
and uh, we either choose Canada or New Zealand and uh, New Zealand was easier for us to get into with visas so we just decided to go to New Zealand and we never regretted it it's an amazing oh, place oh, thank you the, the the thing we love the most is the people you know, like you don't realize how powerful and friendly and helpful you know, Kiwis are that's that's the most amazing thing you can have I'm so pleased to hear that because I feel and maybe it's me, funnily enough, I feel as though we've got sort of moody and low and not the happy people, we carefree people we once were because of COVID and government and restrictions. And I hope we can get it back. But then sometimes I think it might just be me. <laughs> that if I lightened up and smiled, more people would smile back. But I'm so pleased to hear that for you. And you have Kiwi children? Yeah, three children. How old are they? Uh, six, four, and two, and homeschooled since the beginning of the year. Homeschooled? Yeah. Wow. Are you homeschooling like the four-year-old or not yet? Yes, yes. Even the two-year-old is starting to have some kind right. of, a, you know, you, it's in a habit. So because the first one is the first two ones are doing it, the last one wants to do it too. So it's kind of a growing in a habit of this is the time you are learning something. Good for you. Good for you. Um, and tell me, you mentioned that your pick of countries, it had to be with mountains. Why mountains? My husband is from the French Alps. And does he like the mountains to look at, or does he like the mountains to get amongst? Uh, he likes the mountain to snowboard. Ah, snowboarding. So where does he snowboard? Uh, <laughs> three kids and the six doesn't mean we cannot <laughs> snowboard often, but uh, we went to uh, um, Ruapeus this year. Ruapeus, um, yes. Uh, but that's yeah, it's it's starting to pick up again now that uh, the kids are bigger. But it's the first year you are ready, ready to busy yeah. to do anything else. <laughs> well, I can't snowboard or ski, but my kids do. So come to Queenstown and I'll take you up. I'll drive you up in my four wheel drive, and you go to Coronet, Remarkables, Cadrona, Treble Cone. I might take you up on this one. Yeah, because um, the snowboarders seem to love Remarkables. Um, so there you go. And I have, uh, looked after people there. Now tell me, uh, what got you into having hens? Um, no, I think, um, I needed a pet and, uh, we weren't having pets because we were renting, uh, it was a house divided in multiple flats and you couldn't have any cats or dogs. So I wanted a pet to take care of it. As uh, so side, as it would give you some eggs, so it was productive, but I really need to do something outside because I was looking for a job also at the time. And I was looking, spending a lot of time writing cover letters and, uh, and, uh, updating CVs and contacting people. I was really exhausted of working on my computer. So I needed to do physical work. So building the chicken coop and, uh, getting hens was a long-term goal that was getting me outside every day. Right. Now, first things first, what do you do for a chicken coop? I've Googled it. 
oh my god there's hundreds of chicken coops there's hundreds of theories about how you build chicken coops <laughs> and i got a bit overwhelmed so what did you do for, what do you do for your chicken coops uh so i can say you can build it any shape or size whatever you like for me it's important that it's burden proof so i try to have a floor some people don't but yes. because i have and floor means just a pallet Yes. But uh, it avoids the rats to go through, and it ensures when you have chicks that nothing can kill them during the night. And it happened to me once, and I promise you, that's not, not it's not beautiful in the morning. So no. um, it's really important for me that it's fully closed up. That's a place that they can uh, really be safe. Yes. Um, hens nights, uh, hens like to roost quite high. So um, the the last coop we've made is uh, you can stand in it. So that's yes. way they can uh, um, coop at night really high and you don't have to burn or cool anywhere when you need to go in. Yes. Uh, one thing I would say is really important is to have what we call uh, here is drawers. So it's an outdoor space on the outside that's go inside and you lift a lid and allow to get an X from the nest box. Yes. So this way you don't have to go in every time you want to get the nest and get all dirty because the inside of the coop is quite dirty because, you know, they sleep at night and they yeah. go and everything. And if, even if you clean it up, it's still quite dirty. So you have a, a roost box that you can enter, you can open up without going into the coop. And I read somewhere that where they roost, God knows how chicken hens work this out because they look stupid to me. You need to have the where they roost higher than where they lay their eggs. Yes, because otherwise they will tend to think that uh, the where they lay the eggs is where they need to roost. And what's happening is then they poo in the uh, like in the nest, and then you get dirty eggs. Okay. So it's not really healthy, and and you need to clean it up all the time. So you need to have really high um, perch for them to roost at night. And you also uh, need to make sure they have clean access. And um, your nest needs to, to have a bit of privacy. So it doesn't mean to be fully closed up, but having uh, a curtains or uh, some uh, something on cover, like uh, we use cocoa beans to do the um, the floor, um, you know, chicken coop. But anything like uh, wood shaving, hay would work too. But uh, what, what do you does, use? Cocoa, cocoa beans, cocoa beans, you know, the, the shells of the cocoa. Oh, okay. Cocoa beans shell. Cocoa, okay. cocoa, uh, it's cocoa beans husk. Okay. Um, and you buy that, do you? Or where do you get cocoa beans? Uh, you you can buy someone train me. We have a contact in Parera, but you can buy them around. But anyway, like it doesn't have to be cocoa. It can be shavings. Can be, and is that for the floor or the nest? So that's for the floor. For the nest, okay. you need hay. And if you don't hay. have hay, just grab some uh, some grass, let it dry out, and put it there, and that will do the trick. Okay. So uh, explain this to me, and I'm sorry, I'm extremely ignorant of hens. So during the day, a hen wanders around and eats and picks at the ground, and then at night it goes inside all on its own, it finds its way inside and yeah. climbs up and sits on a roost and sleeps standing up. So that's a theory. 
you'll have a bit of production hands that will try to roost outside. Yes. <laughs> you, um, you'll have some, uh, if you don't have enough room in your coop or if uh, you have some leg uh, some red mites, they might start to want to sleep outside. And okay. if you get some wild hens uh, there, because they are used to sleep outside, it's going to get hard to get them to roost inside. But okay. uh, so hens are animals of habits. And hens are flock animals, so they live all together. And if you keep an habit, so as the first few days, it's really important to get the habits. Okay. So um, when you get a new hens, usually uh, if you don't have a flock, keeping them enclosed for a couple of days so they know this is their home okay, uh, is important. And then you can have them uh, going wandering outside. They will come back because they know, they know this is their home. Okay. Uh, because I have a, quite a few hens and rooster right now, I have no problem to get a new one. I just put him at, um, during the night. So in the evening, I put the new hen or new rooster in. And in the morning, he wakes with everyone. So he belongs to the flock. So it reduces the fightings. And then uh, everyone goes out and the new one is a bit disturbed. But he, uh, he can see everyone doing stuff. So he's in kind of being integrated already. already. Okay. They don't attack him or her? No, usually they don't because mine are free ranging, and so uh, you know if you get bullies, they just go away, and okay. that's fine. Um, so they often, they sl they sleep standing up. Yes, uh, not like uh, crouching on the perch. Like okay. they will be kind of sitting on on the perch. And do they poop all the time? During the night, yes, they do. I do not and recommend to sleep under them. <laughs> wow! And then they poop during the day too. Yes, chicken poop quite a bit, but it's actually really good for the soul. Yes, good for the soul. Wally's told us that. So, but when they decide to lay an egg, because I just thought eggs would just pop out, right? But when they decide to lay an egg, they get the urge to lay an egg and they go to the roosting, the, the egg laying part. What do you call that? The, the nest. The nest. They go to the nest to lay the egg because what they want to feel safe and something yeah. soft. So, um, like the theory is, they will go to the nest. So, if you want, if you don't have any eggs, or uh, if that your chicken doesn't don't have any habit, it's <coughs> sorry, it's good to have some uh, fake wooden eggs in your nest. Ah. <laughs> Because what he will do is it will trigger the idea that already a hen came here and think it's comfy place, so they will come back. Okay. So having a fake, and not the plastic ones, because they are too light. The wooden one is really important because the hens know what weight is supposed to have a good egg. So, so if, if, they the, a, if they see if they if they see a wooden egg, they think, oh, that some hens laid that egg there, so that must be a safe and good place to lay an egg. Exactly. It's peculiar because, and then the other thing is, relative to the hen, the egg is big, right? Yep. And they pop one of those eggs out daily sometimes. I even had a hen who was doing eggs twice a day, once in the morning, once in the night, and some of those were double yolks. That's a lot of energy going into that. I mean, to start from nothing and make an that's egg in 12 hours, that's what's happening, right? It's making an egg in 12 hours. Uh, yeah, she was doing eggs every six hours. 
Wow. Because she was, yeah, it was really impressive. She was really, super, really good. Super hen. How do you know which hen is laying the eggs? I don't. Okay. Like some, I, I, I sometimes found. What you'll find is um, hens like to share a good nest. So they'll go around and try to find a good stuff pot. So if your egg production is going down, it's probably, especially in spring, it means probably you have a nest somewhere and you have a few hens that are uh, hiding it. And okay. you might end up to have a birdie in a couple of weeks, which you will, will. If you have a rooster, you might have a hatch. They don't have a rooster, then you will have rotten eggs, and you will need to deal with birdie. Okay. So tell me, um, the hens wander outside, and you say yours are just free range. So are they fenced in, or they could go anywhere they chose? No, I fence in my gardens because they don't need to run as much as my chickens. You fence in your gardens. Yes. Yeah. So you get so that's that's to stop your hens from going to your garden and scratching that up. So yeah. they can wander over everything else. Do they not wander very far? Um not really far. Like they will go a bit further away, but they like it's depending what time. So, um, if I want to train my hen to go back into laying in the chicken coop, I usually close them up in the morning for a couple of hours to make sure that uh, the other hen sees them, each other laying in the nest box, okay. so they understand this is a place. And usually, when you do that for a couple, like five days a week or one week, most of the hens you always have some reluctance, but most of the hens will go back into the coop to lay the eggs. So, um, they like if I close them up, they won't go as much further than, you know, maybe, to, uh, I don't know, I can hear them around, I don't know how far it is. But if uh, if I leave it open, sometimes I don't see them at all, and then they come uh, back um, uh, late afternoon, and that's fine, because I know they are not far, it's just they are scratching in the bush and laying and uh, scratching, eating the the worms and the bugs and everything like the bush love it so you should see the bush since we arrived eight years ago it's amazing like it's been growing like crazy it's really healthy and the soil is getting really better so it's kind of the way i see it is kind of having full-time gardeners that lay eggs so it's quite interesting if you have a bit of length so you're now living on did you say 10 acres hectares Hectares, oh, so it's big. And so you have a garden, which you fenced off, you have grass, and you have bush. Yeah, mainly and, bush. And that mainly bush. And the hens wander into the bush and disappear. Yep, they'll come and, back. And in the bush they're eating grubs and pooping and yep. making a cycle. Yes. Now, they when they come back, into your coop, people are going to be listening to this and thinking, "We've Rodney Hyde is so stupid." Do you? They climb, they climb into their little house and roost. Do you shut the door? So um, sometimes yes, sometimes not. Like um, if you have some chicks which are little, they are kind of fragile at this time, and um, a weasel or uh, rats could attack them. So okay. I, I close them up to make sure that nothing can attack them during the night. 
That's okay. rule number one. But uh, sometimes during winter, when it's pouring and raining, I don't have the energy to go in the night and <laughs> close off the door. Okay. So some people have some automatic doors, uh, like that close up with the light and open up and everything. Um, I don't have that, but that's okay. an option for those who want to just trust the system. And presumably you have to give them water? Yes. So what I've done is my uh, food system and water system. So food si water system is fully independent. On the chicken coop, I have water. Um, I get the water from rainwater into a drum. Yeah. And then I have uh, some uh, like chicken water water cups, which yeah. I uh, you do a drill into your uh, drum, and then you um, have you tie it in the back. And what it does is you have a pebble in the middle, and the chicken learns that when they move the pebble, water comes out. So they drink the water, and it's all well clean and fresh. So ah. my water system is fully independent. I don't have to water them at all. Wow. And do, do, does the water get dirty or does that system ensure that it doesn't get dirty with the hens? So it doesn't get dirty because it's coming from the chicken coop and then all the leaf gets in the oh, bottle. Wow. Oh, wow. So, so it's never like, um, I think we've cleaned it twice and it was mainly because one of the um, thread was leaking, which can happen. You just need to okay. put some seekers and like um, it was the first hole was made on these drums with the system and it was a bit too wide. So uh, when the chicken were going past it, it was moving it and then it finished to go uh, leaking. So we have fixed that now. But other than that, it's kind of, yeah, we didn't make any change since like maybe five years and we don't have much to do. Wow. Now tell me. Um, we're talking, by the way, to an RCR listener who answered my cry to explain to us about hens and get me excited about hens. I got excited about hens, and I thought, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm not sure I'd like it. But so far, this is sounding extraordinary. Tell me, you also, they go out into the forest and eat grubs and fossick around and scratch around and do good things for the soil with their scratching as long as they don't get into your garden. But you also feed them. Yeah. So what we have is a pedal feeder. So yes. we have a made or first people pedal feeder where we were in Newtown. And it lasted, um, yeah, probably a year, but it was the first one. So a pedal feeder is basically the chicken step on the pedal and it opens the lid and the chicken can eat. And then it goes away and the, uh, the lid goes down. So the food cannot be accessed by the rats, the other birds, or anything. So you keep the food just for your chickens. It yeah. also works with the ducks and the turkeys. They get it quite okay. <clears throat> but what it does also is it means that if you have a big storage of grain, you don't have to worry about it because suddenly uh, you have food for one week. So we only need to feed them once a week in the pedal feeder. My goodness. My goodness. Because um, I just imagined all the water and the food getting filthy, but what you're saying is if you have a feeder and a water feed system, it's, it's on demand with the hen being able to access it, and uh, they can just go and get it. So how often do you need to clean your coop? Normally it's every three weeks depending on how many chicken you have 
You will yeah. have to do it more during uh, winter because during winter the nights are longer, so sleep more during uh, the, uh, during the night in the coop. But and is, on, and is that sort of scraping out the poo? Yeah. So what we have done in our chickens coops is put uh, a tarpaulin line on the bottom that we staple in on the side. So when we clean it out, it's really easy to scrape out. So you you, you got a tarpaulin there. Yeah. Yeah, and staple it on the side, everything. Yes. And then when you come with um, the shovel and you just get it out, it's really easy because uh, it's not stuck in the wood in between. Oh, I see. Shovel. I see. You leave you leave the, you leave the tarpaulin in there. You don't pull it yep. out. You just shovel it off the tarpaulin. Yep. And then what do you do with your hen poo? Um, I put it in my gardens. I like uh. Like depending on the time of the year, um, uh, if it's winter, I will put it in some gardens that I don't use, and okay. if it's summer, uh, it will be either be in a place that's going to be a new garden or I'll compost it. But I won't put it on anything growing yet because it will kill it off. It's way okay. too acidic. Okay, Professor Wally Richards, our gardening guru, says that the best manure you can get is hen poo. Uh, we got some access to some horse poo, and that's quite good too. <laughs> okay. Um, so, what happens? Does your chicken coop have to be insulated? No, actually having lots of bird in a small space means it's actually quite uh, warm during okay. winter. Uh, okay. But what you have to do is if you like um, what I've learned on my um, when we started here is that you need to have ventilation. If your chicken coop is too hot, you won't be able, the hen are not going to go back, uh, back in to lay in the chicken um, nest. And if they don't, they will find some nest not far away, but it's just the coop is too hot and okay. they won't go there. So for, uh, we basically just um, like our, our ones are made in um, wood. So we just um, cut some pieces and we have kind of um, a cover that we can put on top and clip in during winter. And during summer, we just open it and remove it so it's cool enough and create enough ventilations. Okay. Tell me, why do your hens have to be fed food if they're running around in the bush eating grubs? <sighs> I think it's also for me it's more a relationship so okay. because i i can feed them by hands i i maintain a good connection with them mm -hmm. um uh, i think it's a productivity things too i never try like um like during summer sometimes i don't feed them as much because i know there is a lot of bugs but during mm -hmm. winter i make sure it's really topped up because i mm -hmm. know there is not always enough food and i want them to stay strong during mm -hmm. winter you're, you're in wellington in winter, they stop laying and go through something of a molt or something, I read. No, so the molt uh, is depending on the hens. So not all the hens will molt at the same time. I have some ones, some ones that start uh, molting in April, May. I had some ones uh, starting molting in June and where we get those crazy south winds and they are uh, like barely naked with this like five millimeters feathers wow. and, and I'm freezing cold for them. And they stay usually in the coop, so which tell you that it's way warmer mm. there. Um, so the trick for that, which I've learned, 
is that you need to have pullet every year that will um, the pullet from the year we start laying um, actually in June. So you will still have a low product egg production during winter and uh, not have any egg withdrawal. So we, if you do that, you will have some eggs full year around. What's a pullet? A pullet is a young hen. Okay. So you get so, young hens in at the start of winter. I don't get them. I hatch them. I got oh. the you. Oh, wow. So, oh, so you're a breeder of hens. Uh, I've crossbred my hens for eight years, yes. I'm crossbreeding heritage hens for eight years. I I made a, pro, uh, a point to myself to make sure that I have crossbred because they are uh, stronger because you don't have a uh, problem for me with breeds. And that's only my point of view, and don't take it for real. But um, um, you get defects, like in breeds of dogs or, or horses, where when you get uh, crossbreds, usually uh, at one point you'll get stronger birds. Mm. So my birds are usually really strong and really healthy, and I also um, I also eat the, I eat the roosters, so I need also big ones. So I crossbreed big heritage ends. So heritage is, uh, you know, the traditional yes. um, breed. So you got you get heritage hens to start with, and then you have a rooster, roost, one rooster? I usually have two. Two. And what are the roo- have... what, what, what's the breed of the rooster? Um, so usually what I try to do is keep one rooster of my flock and get a new rooster from uh, somewhere else. So I get okay. new bloods and I get also some good new genes from uh, some right. genes of my flock. So I mix it up. So. I don't know how to word this. You're eating eggs, right? Yeah. But some eggs are getting fertilized. All I of don't them. want all of them. All of them. All the eggs I'm eating are fertile. With a wee chicken inside. No. <laughs> so to get the chicks, there is a process. That's I, like get when the, I get the birds and the bees. We don't need to go into that. But no, d- I don't. A rooster... I... <laughs> <laughs> no, so the I know the process. As a hen needs to get broody. Ah. So all, if you you all your eggs are fertile, you won't yes. get a chick if your hen is not broody and not sitting on the eggs for twenty one days. And promise you, it's quite short twenty one days. Oh, so. so a, a, a hen gets pregnant and knows it's pregnant. No, so uh, she doesn't Sorry, this know is tricky. if her eggs. So what's happening on the process is kind of hormonal, and that she see a big pile of eggs, and suddenly, and especially the small bad hen hens are um, um, have a really good reputation to get broody, and yep. once she get broody, it means our body temperature, our hormones kick in, and our body temperature gets hotter and what she does is she fills the urge to stay on the eggs so she usually pick a few feathers to uh, to make it comfy for a nest and then she will stay on there and she will warm them up and she will stay there for 21 days only so getting out once or twice a day to eat and drink but she always come back so you know when you go to your they that they're, they're 
gosh, I sound stupid. I'm a city boy, right? So you know, you go and collect your eggs for breakfast in the morning and you open up your um, box and there's all these eggs sitting there with no hen on them. You say, oh, those eggs are good to eat. They've not got a chick inside them. Yeah, but if there's, a, if there's a hen sitting on there, you think, hang on, that hen could be about to lay, is, has, has got a chicken inside that egg. You need 21 days. Yeah. But I don't so want to... I don't want to crack an egg that's got a one-day-old embryo in it. I'd sort of – You won't see it. So ah. what's happening is most of you guys, even in the um, in the commercial ones, sometimes you have fertile eggs because sometimes they mistake the gender sexing in the commercial breeding. And sometimes ah. I've even had stories of people – Oh, I see what you're saying. That's the 21 days. So what I'm doing is I'm eating fresh eggs – I don't know whether they have been fertilized or not because nothing's happened much in that first day or two. I'm sorry. God, I'm stupid. I just imagined that I'd crack it and a chicken would fall out and I'd feel sick to my stomach. No. So this ah. is why you need an incubator or a pretty ants okay. um, to be able to hatch chicks. Okay. So you don't have to separate out. When you're breeding them, you don't have to separate out your rooster and your hens that are laying eggs because you can just tell. Uh, I just know that all my eggs are fertile. <laughs> That's yeah. basically my. Yeah. This is also why I have to rooster. There's two reasons I have to rooster. One of them is because um, if I have a problem with one of the rooster, I still have a second one. So yes. it's backup. And the other reason is uh, it's definitely sure that all the hen are being uh, caught um courted for their yes. um, services and are being fertilized in, you know, yes. the oh bees and the flowers. And... A, it, it, it's quite a lot of biology, isn't it, happening? Um, so when these the hen sits on the egg for 21 days and out hops a chicken. A chick, yep. Tiny, chick. very tiny. Well, they're, they're very cute, though, right? Yep. They're not what yellow. You... They're not yellow. Don't be like ah. that. Okay. <laughs> what do you do with a chick? I leave them with a the hen, like you would leave a mum with her baby. Okay. <laughs> and then what happens? They just start running around, too. So for me, because I'm quite in an open space and I've rats and everything, I keep them in what I call um, nurseries, which are like small coops, just okay. for them for the first like two, three weeks, depending on the weather, on how they are doing and all these kind of things. And and when they are strong enough, I'll leave them outside so that they can go in the wall. But what I found is I have less deaths this way, whereas otherwise I would probably lose roughly... Yeah, 50% of the chicks. Like uh, in the wild, uh, one of the hen we got was from the wild, and she told us that the mum had like 16 chicks and only two survived. Wow. So you, you like in the real wild, like not my place, much wilder, it's really, you know, the number makes the strength, but they also learn to be careful of falcons, of rats. And this is a learning that you cannot teach as a human. This is what the hen learns. And hens learn from each other. 
So okay. when I get a new rooster, a new hen, they don't know how to use the pedal feeder. They don't know how to use the water. They look what the other do, and then they figure it out. Okay. Now, um, how many hens have you got? <clears throat> Around 25, including rooster probably. And if you're letting the rooster go wild, are you growing the population or is it stable at 25? Uh, it's changing all the time. Have some natural deaths, which are sickness. Yeah. Um, there is um, um, we killed. Um, of course, we have roosters and we eat all roosters. So when they are yeah. starting to, if you have too many roosters, they will arrest your hens, and your uh, hens will get fizzless, stressed okay. out. So it's not good. So you have to keep a balance. The ratio is, which I read on internet, which seems to work really good, is one rooster for ten hens. Okay. So you're killing the, you kill the little roosters when they're chickens still, right? You can. No, like like when they're starting to be um, what we call active. So when they start to be running after the hens, this is usually the time where we end their life because this is the time where they are going to be a, um has a hard time for the flock. And they taste good. It takes really good because they've been free ranging. So my chicken don't take two months to grow. Like they usually take six six months because they are okay. really free ranging. So they they grow slower, but they have bones really hard. Like if you go mm. in the supermarket and you take a chicken and you you take his bone, you can break it by hand. Basically, you have no luck doing this with mice. Like the bones are so hard, you would need a hammer to break them. Wow, and. They taste different to one from the supermarket? Yeah. Like, it's like, even my eggs, everything is different. Like, the one in the supermarket, once you get a real free-range rooster or hens, you will feel like it's mush. It doesn't have any taste at all. It's it's tasteless. Like, my, my the meat uh, from my birds are really red and, you know, uh, alive. And it's a bit tough, so you 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 need to cook it in uh, with a lot of liquids. But okay. also from that, it's really really good. And do you have trouble killing them? No, I'm starting to do it. My my husband has been doing that for a long time. So we have a technique where we basically take the rooster up his legs, and we have a, a machete, which is quite yeah. sharp. And uh, we let the rooster head on a log. Yeah. And you just wait until you settle, and then you just give the final call. Okay. Do they run around when that with that nervous thing and with blood running out of their head, or do they just no? Run? So you you keep the you keep the legs up. Okay. And then when it's finished, usually what we do is the blood of um is. We put them on our, one of our gardens because it's actually really good for your plants, so yes. we don't lose it. And are they hard to pluck? With hot water, no. You take some boiling water, you pour it over them, then you plunge them in a bit of hot water and just plug it out. Ducks oh. is really hard. Is it? <laughs> so how long would it take you to pluck a hen? Um Like to plug it and, and uh, gut it. 30 minutes. 30 minutes. That's how long it takes me to get to the supermarket to buy a dried up old chook that's not had a happy life and been well fed. My goodness, 30 minutes. And um, 
when we started, it was more one hour, one hour, 15 minutes. But with time, you get used to the fact that you really need hot water and you just make sure if it's too hard in, before. When it was too hard to plug the feather, we were just pulling really harder. But now we just um, put more hot water and it's easy to plug out. Okay. How do, the kids must learn a lot from the hens. Yeah, they learn a lot from the chick, from the hens. They love yeah. talking to them. Yeah, and I mean they learn about like my kids think chicks, chickens come from the supermarket. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't know what it is. Now, with 25 hens, you must get a lot of eggs some days. Yep. So, so I sell some fertile eggs. I sell some for eating too, and I eat some, and I'm looking at uh, having uh, some into lime water, but I didn't have time to do that yet. But apparently in lime water, you can conserve your eggs for a year and use them as uh, it was uh, as fresh eggs. So wow, we'll I didn't know that. And, and, and water? And water in lime water. So uh, the, pl the pickling, um, pickling limes of, to make pickles? Yeah. Um, I didn't do it yet, but what I've learned is that if you put that uh, at a certain ratio, then you create your lime water, you put your eggs in there, and then you cover it until the top. It doesn't even – it just needs to be covered. And what wow. it does is it, it will avoid the eggs to – basically, the egg is breathing. So the egg is porous. So if yeah. you stop its ability to breathe, it won't, it won't move in either rotting or a di uh, different direction. Mm. So um, now what's the economics of looking after hens? Do you reckon, like, what's it cost? You obviously, you've got your setup costs, and that varies depending on how fancy you go. But once yeah. you set up, does the – I guess the main cost is the feed? Yeah. Is that expensive? Uh, so 25 kg of food, and I only take grains. I don't take uh, the pellets because I think um, roux um, is better. So, yeah. um, um, and it's uh, what's going to happen is if your pellets get a bit of water, it's going to mold and it's not going to be good. That's okay. my experience. Don't like um, this is why I go for grains. It's last longer, and I can balance. In winter, I add more uh, corn because there is more fat into it, and it gives okay. them to go through winter. Um, but roughly one bag uh, in Wellington of twenty-five kilo of grain is around thirty-two, thirty-four dollars. Yeah. So right now. But we don't only have hens. We have turkeys. We have ducks. So and we have quite a few ducks, and they eat a lot. So right now we feed them. We buy, I think, six bags every month, roughly. Okay, so you're spending say thirty-four, sixteen, fifty dollars a week feeding your ducks, your hens, yeah, and your. Did you say turkeys? Yeah. Wow, and out of that. You get all the eggs you'd ever want. Yep. You're not going to be short of eggs, right, because you're selling them. No. And then how often do you eat chicken a week? Uh, we try to. It's depending on, the, like, this period is a low period because this is a period we get the chicks and not the big ones. So yeah. we don't have usually have leftovers from But for roughly 
I would say once a month for the last six months of the year, we probably have at least one rooster. Once a month? Yeah. Okay. So 34. I mean, when you're paying what you're paying for eggs at the moment, like our kids, we our kids just eat egg after egg after egg. They're always eating eggs. And um, when you had to go in and buy a carton, I mean, and you could only get one carton at a time, goodness knows why. Uh, well, I think I do know why it was the government, but anyway, and the supermarkets. But anyway, there was it was so frustrating because you'd sort of go in in the morning to get a carton of eggs and then either have your wife sneak in, I'd get my wife to sneak in after me and buy another carton or how I'd have to come back and get another carton because <laughs> you you were like you're running your whole day around trying to get enough eggs to keep the kids fed because my kids love eggs and I think eggs are just a great wholesome food that used to be very economical and then weren't. Um, they're coming better now, of course. But it strikes me that it it it's a good saving um, to have your own, particularly if you're getting the meat. Now, um, I'll have something because we only talk about the food that we are buying. But you, there is also a part that is actually a lot of saving is the food scrap. So the chickens love all most of all all your food scrap. So at uh -huh. home, we get um, one trash bag a month out. No. Five. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And we do recycling depending on the periods. Like we make all cheese, but so when we make the cheese, we recycle. We need to, we have a full trash of bottles because we make it out of raw milk and then the regulations say it needs to be in bottles. You can't have um, buckets. But other than that, we recycle probably once a month too or every two month, uh, every two weeks depending on the type of uh, recycling. So all your kitchen waste, so this would be um, all the green waste that you normally compost, you feed the chickens? Yeah, 90% of what you put in your compost can go to your chicken. Okay. So cabbage leaves, um, like a lot of things, like even um, leftover of meats, they love that. They will fight for it. I've, okay. I've had some, uh, like, you know, you got um, a mutton legs or a, a lamb legs, you give the bones, and I have some chicken running around with a bird in their back, and that's laughable. <laughs> oh, wow. Because um, I make a lot of bone broth, and I used to give to my neighbor who had hens. He used to love you know, the scraps, the the celery and the carrots and the bones yep. um, from the bone broth, and his chooks would love that. Do they make a mess with it or do they clean it up? They clean it up really tidy. Wow. And do you just put it on the ground or do you put it in a feeder? No, we put it on the ground. So this is where uh, we have a relationship with the chickens. So this is there is a special, special noise I do to call them uh, for food. And they know this is the noise they need to come for. And we have a place, and it's always the same place we feed them. And it's oh. uh, and it's and so basically, I call them. And even if they are not around, I'll call them, and they'll come running to have the food. And how often do you do that? Uh, it's depending on how much waste we have. Yeah. <laughs> but usually, it's once a day or every two days. Because okay. you know, we we like um, we trash a lot of things. Um, yeah. If you don't use compost, or um, uh, yeah. so, like you know, all the leftovers that um, it's 
like the chicken, the cabbages, leaves. Uh, uh, so one rule is don't feed the onions, don't fill them uh, avocado and, um, you know, um, leeks. That's like okay. you have a leaf, um, also no citrus. Okay. But basically everything else, like potato peels, you can cook them and give them to them. It's good. Wow. You need to cook them. Well, what about diseases? Do you get diseases? Yeah. So in New Zealand, there is mainly three diseases. Uh, you have red mites. So red mites are like birds that will um, sleep in the coop, and at night they will come and eat and suck out the blood of the hens. So uh, I've learned how to the way, um, and it's it's basically uh, taking a lot of energy of your hands, so you won't have enough uh, eggs production, and your okay. um, the comb of your chickens will start to look really pale. You know, they are okay. normally really yeah, um, bright red. If they start to look light bright and even paler, this means they don't have enough blood in their body, and probably you have uh, what we call a red mite infections. So uh, you have lots of way to treat it, but what we do is it's kind of those tiny, tiny, tiny shell that are in a powder. And you put that around in the push in every location. And what's going to happen is the mites, it's like glass for them, and they are going to die from it. And you are going to you do that for two once a week if you have a big infections. But if you just do it a preventive uh, especially in spring, because this is the time of the year where they all go back out, they hatch from their eggs and they come back, uh, then you will probably do it, you know, two, three times during spring and you should be fine. But just always watch out. It's easy to spot when you go into the chicken coop. The red mite always go into dark spots. So they'll go hide and disappear to support or behind something. And this is something to really be wary when you are building a chicken coop is don't leave a lot of hidden places because this is where you can have all the red mites hiding and it's okay. kind of a, ha, helping them breeding, basically. Okay. That's one disease. What was the next one? Leg mites. Leg mites. <clears throat> so leg mites are tiny, tiny mites that live under the scale of the legs of the hens. And you will notice that little by little, the scale will start to uh, go open and open, and then you'll have hens with really big, fat feet and legs. And this is where it's really painful for them. You will notice it. So once you know how to recognize it, you will notice it right away. But if you wait a long time, your hen is going to be tired. She's going to sit always because she doesn't want to stay on her legs because it's painful. So there is really easy way to treat that. Uh, there is someone on trainee who has done a mix uh, of... Um, uh, essential oils and uh, with um, oils and um, bee wax and you melt it and you put it on the legs. Uh, you can also use petroleum jelly. So when you put on the baby's butt, you put that on the legs. And what's going to do is the, you do that for a couple of weeks um, as often as you can. And it's going to basically suffocate, suffocate the mites under the legs and okay. so the mites will die off. Some of the little scales might go away, but that's fine. It will grow back, and it's going to be um, clean again. Sounds like I'd have to pick the hen up. Yes. Mm. So this I'm... is something I really recommend. If you have some hens, 
just try to grab them now and then and make sure that it's a comfy space for her because you need to tr be able to treat them and you don't want to fight with them when you want to treat them. No, so I no. Don't, <laughs> I don't grab mine often, but when I do grab them, I make sure it's um, it's comfortable and they get used to it. And, I think and I'd have to get used to it too because, you know, I've never picked up a hint. They scare me a little bit. Uh, what's the third thing they can get? They can get uh, worms. So it's okay. actually the harder to manage. Uh, I don't, I've never done any uh, medical, uh, like medicine treatment for worms. I'll always do what I call preventive. And so putting some cut garlic in the grain, just tiny bits, will help them warm themselves. Uh, I also put some garlic, uh, just a cloth, into the water, and it will also help warm them when they are drinking water. Wow. If you put too much, the hens won't like the taste of water and they won't drink it. So you have to balance it out. Okay. So usually I put one one cloth, two if they are little, in a 200 liter covered drum. So you don't need much, but okay. it's really effective. And the last one, if you there is some type of worms that go and they do a Y in the in the sorry I missed my word uh, no, in their nets and and in our right. throats exactly. Yeah. And what is happening is she can't really swallow the food really easy. So in order to kill them, uh, it's really easy. The diatomaceous herbs that I've been using for the red mites, I just put some in the grain. And what's going to happen is those tiny pigs are going to kill the worms because it's going to go through the worms and it's going to kill them. So by doing that, I don't get fried of worms, but I have lots of space. But I manage the, the consequences to maintain a healthy, balanced life for my chickens. Mm -hmm. Tell me, did you make your coops, the current coops that you've got, did you make them yourself? Yep, all of them. Did you get the plans from somewhere or just start? We kind of had an idea of what we wanted because we had the first coop we've built in. One of recommendation is if you can get um, some old windows built in into your chicken coop, it's always nice to be able to go in the coop and be able to see oh, because yeah. it's <laughs> so having some like is a you nice know twi twin walls or uh, windows or and just recycle like yeah there is lots on train me on free cycle you can get them for like one dollar or free and yeah. it's just really useful yeah that's a great idea to put a window in um does it need to be double glazed? No. Because <laughs> the single glazed windows you can pick up easy, though, for, as you say, for taking them away. Oh, my goodness. Um, and is there a web page that you go to for all this information that you've got? No, there is multiple, multiple websites you can get information depending on what you have. You'll have some other diseases which sometimes you cannot cure, and it's part of the life cycle. I had uh, months, uh, three weeks ago, I had one of my hen who died, and I tried to help her. When you really got a, a sick um, hen's recommendation is to put them on on the side, and um, like I tried to give her some apple cider diluted into water it helped boost their immune system but 
sometimes it doesn't work. So it's up to, you know, um, yeah. the hands and whatever they are fighting. Like, um, personally, I believe my hands, all my chicks and my hands needs to be able to fight whatever is happening. So I'm not doing a really strong quarantine as such because no. I, I want to keep the strong ones. I don't want to do, like, I want to help the, the weak ones, but if they cannot, it's it's part of the life cycle it's yeah. not it's not being mean it's you know life and death are linked and where do you be, get your uh water dispenser and your feeder from what's the best place to go to in new zealand for that material or the so the water i bought it on train me because i wanted the cup with the treadles which i could as uh, the chicken needs to move okay. because uh, i had most of the uh, stuff you can get is really for um what we call uh pipe tin systems but okay. not for low pressure and because i wanted to get the water from the roof i have low pressure systems so it needs to work without pressure Got so it. this is what i'm looking at uh the, the the pedal feeder we have made it from wood so that you have lots of map um lot of uh plans you can find on uh, on internet if you don't want to make one my recommendation even so i didn't have one is on train me they sell they sell a lot of grandpa's feeder okay which is actually a pedal feeder uh in metal and it's, it's the same principle the chicken step in and can eat and uh, it's made so that the weight of the rats won't be able to open the pedal feeder so only your okay. chickens will be able to open it okay and it if you want to train your chicken to use the pedal feeder it's quite easy the first week you just put a really big uh, brick on the pedal and leave it open so the chicken knows the food is here and then the second week, you put um, uh, your bricks, but smaller, so it's half open. So the chicken has to step on it to be able to finish to open it to be able to feed. And the last week, you just remove the, uh, the brick, and the chicken will knows it needs to step in. So and then once you got one, we got it. Everyone will go, is going to get it. Do you have a uh, web page or Facebook page where you put up? stories about your hens no i don't i'm off the grid good idea <laughs> good idea now i just wondered because i'd like i'd like to follow someone that was doing it and i could see the pictures and see how they do it and see how they make all the stuff um my little problem is and i know this is silly you know how you can be scared of the dark or scared of spiders i'm actually scared of hens i hear that and i don't know why but I sort of look at them, and when they look at me, I think, "Ooh, I don't know." And I, 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 I mean, I like most things. I'm sure I'd get over it if I had them, because you'd have to pick them up and then kill them, and I'd get quite used to it, and I'd eat their eggs, and I'd, I would end up probably loving them to bits. But um, I just have to overcome that little thing, and that's been um, my my reluctance. It's just, and I think it's because. When we were kids, we used to work collecting eggs at an egg farm, and they were jammed into these cages, and you'd walk into the shed, and there'd be a pile of manure, you know, like half a metre high. It seemed like a mountain when you're sort of seven or eight years old. And then um, these hens, the noise of these hens, and they were sticking their head through the wire and they'd pulled all their feathers off. 
and um, and then the eggs would roll out on this little wire cage, and you'd just go along pushing a trolley, gathering up the eggs. My sisters used to do it, and I, they'd be babysitting me, and I'd have to go and help them. And walking into that bloody barn, it was shed filled with these screaming hens. It was like hell on earth to me as a little kid, and I'd be looking at these things. I still ate eggs, by the way. It never put me off eggs. But those screaming, squawking hens, it was just awful. So maybe them happily galing, heading into the bush and living on scraps and having a nice, warm little roost, maybe that would help me get over that. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually uh, like if everyone had only had one or two hens in their garden, which most of the people could do really easy, Yeah, like it's going to reduce this amounts of hens which are going to be caged up or – yeah. Free ranging because what you have to know is as free ranging means that the, the hens is allowed to go outside, but most of the hens are animals of habits. So if you have a tiny door at the end of your shed, and even though they are free ranging and they could go outside, you probably have 10% of them who are going outside. The rest of them just keep inside because they don't know what is outside. And this well, is where funny. The- that's funny because I've noticed with all this hoopla that now they're all free range because of government rules and the supermarket saying they've got to be certified and all this. I've noticed no change in the eggs. And I noticed that when you buy them from a farm, the eggs almost too rich. You get quite a shock because they yeah. taste so strong. You're sort of not used to it. And you think, oh gosh, that egg is overpowering because it's so strong. The supermarket eggs to me haven't changed despite all the hoopla. And that's what's happened, right? Just pretend fake. Uh, I don't what? know exactly what's happened. Like I, I cannot say I didn't go on the forum, okay. but what I know is um it's for her hens, animal hens are animals of habits, and if you don't train them into going outside, they won't go outside. No. No. So uh it's a bit like I go to the I bake bread and you go to the supermarket and you buy this so called sourdough bread, and I swear that's not sourdough bread. God knows I've never been <laughs> rude enough to ask him, but that's <laughs> That's not sourdough bread. There's no way. Well, you're from France. You know what good bread is. That stuff in the supermarket's disgusting. Um, and I think maybe when I get into this, the eggs would be the same. Oh, well, you're very encouraging. And would you encourage a beginner to have a rooster? Not in town. No, no. But if you're not in but, town. Yeah, roosters are great, especially if you have lots of space because they protect your hands. So they okay. will protect your your hands against um, um, falcons, uh, any birds. They will help uh, keeping them secured. And this is where you need a good rooster. And this is also why it's important to have a multiple rooster because you. It's not about the good looking. A rooster needs to take care of the hands and not yeah. go and like and jump man. on them and go and jump on the next one. Is is the feathering of all of them, and you need to feel them protected so they all come to him when they feel threatened. He needs to go look for food and call them when he finds something interesting. He needs to take care of them. It's really important. But a good rooster. Definitely, it's really worse. Any mean rooster, don't keep it. Any mean rooster is going to be mean to your children, is going to be mean to you, anyone, even the hens. And usually it's not a good thing because the hens learn from each other and you are going to have other mean hens and other mean rooster learning okay. from that. 
So okay. only keep the good ones for your sanity and for your flux sanity in the future. Don't believe it's a temporary things. Some stuff like my first hands, one of my first hands was one in the wild one and she learned from little that you need to hide when there is falcons. And even nowadays, there's still the chicken are still raising an alarm and hiding into the bush if there is a falcon or another bird falling above. My goodness. Like, um, are the roosters very, I know you, you're not in town, but for your sake, do the roosters start screaming and crowing in the morning and waking you up or are they not too bad? No, they're not too bad, but the chicken coop is a bit further away. But what I would say, it's an habit, you know, it's like, um, it's part of the life cycle. So yeah. we, 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 it's part of our, our noise yeah, environment. It's like, yeah. it's, um, I've learned on, on the internet, which, uh, someone managed to stop having a rooster crowing by making him understand that he was the main rooster. And it's a lot of, tra uh, of, of training. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, they must have they must have a very small brain and still be able to learn. It's extraordinary. They are allies. So you'll find out you were saying they look stupid, but actually you have some stupid ones, but you have some really clever ones. They mm. are not all the same. They actually have characters. And going back to that, Rene, I would say if you tend to pick up a, a chicks, like the one that doesn't, was starting to be feathered, that doesn't need a heat lamp, that's the best way to start because we started this way and one of one of our two first hand were gray or pigeons. And because they were quite small, the other ones were picking on them. And one day we opened the coop and they went under our arms and we they were like, You are my mummy and everything. And after that, it was bonding forever. We feed them on our shoulders. So she would climb on the shoulder and she would eat from our hands. She was really clever. She was really she That's was a good idea. I should start with with little chickens that are past the heat lamp stage. Yeah, because when they are little, you learn quite a bit and you can start to understand how they are because chickens is a world on their own. It's like every animal, everything that's in the world, it's, it's a learning curve. And it's not about getting in sets. It's about learning the relationships. Like we also have <laughs> turkeys and ducks and we have been having ducks for maybe four years now. And I'm not competent yet with ducks because I don't know yet how to make sure they hatch. So I've learned it's part of the hens and everything. But I, 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 I have not much competence compared to the hens, which is I spent more time with them. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, what a wonderful story. Oh, I'm encouraged. And isn't it interesting because you drive past and you see a chicken coop and you think, oh, yeah, they've got hens, but you don't think of the personalities and the relationships and what they're learning and what the kids are learning of them, particularly if you go through the whole life cycle. I was going to make a joke uh, halfway through this because um, Matt Walsh in What is a Woman uh, asked, <laughs> asked one of the professors of gender studies <laughs> that hen laying an egg could really be a rooster. Um, which always makes me laugh every time I think of it, because um, I imagine your kids know the difference between a rooster and a hen, and they know about the patriarchy and the role of the rooster and the role of the hen, not just in terms of reproduction, but also in terms of protection, which is something if they were going to school, they would, they would be confused about. <laughs> So I can see the value. I can see the value of learning about the patriarchy and what a good rooster does, 
and what a bad rooster doesn't, and that uh, the the roles of the rooster and the hen um, are well defined biologically and for the purposes of looking after that next generation. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been talking hens, roosters, chickens, eggs, chicken coops, feed, water, the benefits of having hens. And I think I'm sold. It'll be like Wally. Once you get thinking about it and talking about it, you feel yourself empowered into this world. And we were talking about it with a lovely listener who contacted us, answered my cry. Come and I need someone to come on and talk about uh, hens and what you need to do and how hard is it. Didn't seem too hard. Water, food, um, and there's three diseases to worry about. And if there's something else they get, uh, let them die or kill them and eat them. Um, which is the next step, I guess, in the process. It was Clem, who's this great New Zealander, loving New Zealand, come from France, had three Kiwi kids, uh, living the great life and teaching us all. Uh, remember, send us a text, 2057, give us your hen story. Uh, email me, inbox at radio. That was a wonderful talk about hens. I'm, I'm intrigued by them. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. You're going to want to send me a text after this next interview, I'm sure. You can email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. And along this morning, we have a very, very interesting idea. And it's coming to us courtesy of Solomon Torkilson. And the idea is set the South Island free. Uh, cut the cable. Separate the North and the South Island, and the South Island will continue its gloriful way with its Southern men and Southern women. And no, nothing but peace and light. Is that right, Solomon? So lovely oh. to have you here this morning. Oh, cheers, mate. It's a brilliant bang on. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I've got to ask you, your surname has got a hyphen in it, and when you first see it, you think, oh, it's Tor, T-O-R, hyphen, Kilsen, K-I-L-S-E-N. I asked you, A, how to pronounce it, which I always do, and where it's from, and way, 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 way back, seven, eight, nine generations, your antecedents on your dad's side came from Norway. Yes, that is correct. That's correct. And, and went to Denver and cut all the trees down. Yep, no, I, yeah, and uh, yeah, no, they, they, they did their job, I reckon. <laughs> they were like, they were hardy people. That oh, they were. Out. They were. And, and I think it's brilliant because, you know, the Scandinavians as a whole tend to be very, very community-based, don't, don't, give a rats about what, the, you know, the politics or what's going on. They just want to get on with life and, you know, look after everybody and get the job done. Um, and, and you've you know, still I, got that in you, you think, from those generations past? Oh, I, re I really do. I'm, I'm a dog with a bone, honestly. it's If I see there's something that needs to be done, I don't care. I, I don't really don't care what anybody has to say about it. It's just if the job has to be done, it has to be done. And... Um, the way I look at it is beyond just, it's not just myself, it's just not just my kids or my family, it's the community as a whole. Um, and when you look in Scandinavian countries, that's a very, 
um, prominent idea is, you know, when the winter comes in and food scarce and all this other carry on, you just have to get on with it. You have to work with everybody and never mind the hustle and bustle of it. You've just got to get the job done yes. for benefit of everyone in the community. And that's something that, that's a concept and a philosophy I've really brought into my own life going forward. Well, once that winter socks in up northern Norway in the old days, oh, you, you, cars you, you, and electricity. Oh man. Yeah. You, oh, you're, you just, you you're moments away from death at every every minute. Oh yeah, you absolutely are. And it's one of those things where like there's a lot of personal politics and a lot of, when you get snowed in, you have to put all that aside and you have to deal with whoever you're dealing with and yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to figure it out. You yeah. have to figure out your issues and you can't get uh, too over the top with it because like, if you're you're snowed in with somebody, you could be snowed in with that person for, you know, three, four plus months. You, you've got to figure it out. Um, great. Now, the other thing I heard, I found out about you just chatting before, five children. Yes, father of five. Oldest father is five. 12. What's Harold's the youngest? So uh, my oldest is 12. Well, he turns 12 um, beginning of next month. Um, and my youngest is two and a half going three. So father of five, all you. the same mum, figuring it out. And how old are you, Solomon? So I'm 32. Well, so you started having children before you were 20 or just when you were 20? Yep, so um got married at uh well we got at, we got married at 18, 19, um and first first baby uh, was born um just after my twentieth birthday. So we started young. Um fortunately you know how, me and, Do you know how fantastic I think that is? That is so fantastic. Well, my family I came from a family I'm I'm the middle child of um, one, two, it, looks, three. it looks a lot when you've got to stop and count. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm the middle child of I think five, six. Um, so I've got two older brothers. So I've got two older sisters, one older brother, and two younger brothers. So right in the middle. So the idea of big family was just a that it was that was normal. So having but loads of kids, but you're bucking the trend in two. Well, in so many ways, you young man. What do you say? You were thirty-two. Young man, 32. young man, settling down, getting married, getting married's bucking the trend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Set, I mean, set, I... Settling down at 20. Most kids are sort of still wondering what they're going to do, wandering around university. You were married with a baby on the way, like my yep. father was. Yeah. Which, and then all of that's just counterculture. And then to have five children, and may I say, I suspect you mightn't have stopped. Um, so uh, I mean, unfortunately, um, uh, and this happened. I know, I know, a lot of marriages and relationships uh, fell apart during the first um, lockdown. Uh, unfortunately, mine wasn't an exception to that rule. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm so and, sorry to hear that. Oh, uh, I think it's one of those things where. Uh, Social isolation is absolutely devastating. devastating. And, and I think and I think New Zealand is only now starting to bear the fruit of those lockdowns and that mass social isolation that happened. Um, now, me and the kids' mum, you know, we've 
we've uh you know we're, we've come to an agreement between ourselves so we um we co-parent the kids so we're as close to 50 50 as as we can get and we try to make sure that the kids us not being together doesn't impact the kids so we're, we've we've done that well so you know even then even now we've figured it out so um so we so we well, do what's called in the house. So I've got my bedroom in the house. She's got her bedroom in the house. Um, I was a full-time solo dad of the five kids for about two years um, after that initial break. Um, but we now co-share the house and co-parent our kids growing up. So as far as the kids are concerned, you see, even there, just because we're not together doesn't mean that we've put our care of the children away if that makes sense so they come you know, first absolutely oh 100 so you see e- e- even there it's, you've got to i think society as a whole is very very throw away and as far as if it doesn't suit you you throw it away and you you know get rid of it it's just like no just because men who aren't together anymore doesn't mean that we're beyond figuring it out for what's best for the kids if that makes sense I hope you don't mind us prying, but yeah, go on. You're co-nesting, you describe it. So, do you have breakfast and dinner together? Um, yeah. So we we've got the we do the breakfast for the kids, and you know, we're, I I get the kids. Um, you know, we get them up ready for school. We we spend a bit of you know family hustle and bustle time in the morning before school. Um, get them to school. Now I work. At the shop, I work um, nine until nine, about nine a.m. normally until about you know six seven p.m. at night, yeah. and then uh, we have alternating weekends off. So every other weekend, um, like she'll take off for a weekend, and the alternative weekend I'll take off for the weekend, and so I it's see. as close to fifty fifty as we can, whilst also giving each other enough space not to you know. <laughs> blow up at each other <laughs> wasn't that wasn't that lockdown and that isolation devastating mentally? oh it's it's i i think it destroyed and did far more damage than we even realize yet uh, i think we're still we're still to see the end result the, the the psychological and the social psychological impact of those lockdowns, mm. uh, I think. Well, I think that's still coming. I think that's still working through. Um, and I I definitely think it's put New Zealand and the world as a whole on an interesting track. And uh, I think the next few years are definitely going to be one for the history books, and will be quite fascinating to look back on. I agree. Um, you actually don't know you're in a significant bit of history oftentimes, no. but you feel no. as though at the moment we're in quite a juncture. You know, we're in a we're in a extraordinary moment of history. You don't know which way it's gonna go. Yes. And also there is a madness abroad, you know. Oh, it's I I agree. I uh, yeah. On, on multiple levels, yeah. and, and this, this is the thing: is the whole situation is very, very nuanced. There's a lot going on, and yeah. I, I don't think people are aware, necessarily aware of it themselves, mm. or on a societal, civilizational level. And yeah. I, I think it's yeah, yeah. You see, and, when you talk, sorry, carry on. Yeah, no, 
Uh, well, when you talk in a um, in you know a fic- fictitious sense, because obviously we do a lot of um, at the shop, we do a lot of um, you know fantasy based bits and pieces, and one of the things you call uh, what's referred to as a canon event, and as far as this critical point that is the catalyst for such big changes, yes. even though it didn't seem particularly relevant or important at the time, that butterfly effect is yeah. absolutely huge. Well, it was like the Archduke Ferdinand being assassinated. Hardly anyone noticed. And next yes. minute, there's World War One. Exactly. Now, tell me about your shop. So I set up... Um, so pre-COVID, actually, um, me and the um, the ex-wife, we set up a cafe arcade in Timaru because there's Timaru is doing very very well. It's a it's a growing port city. There's loads of room around it for expansion. Um, there's a lot of work here, a lot of building happening here, but there's very little non-alcoholic based, non-sport indoor entertainment available in Timaru, and you know, when when I was fifteen, growing up in Timaru, there there wasn't a youth centre, there wasn't anywhere to go, and I kind of got to the point. I'm like, right, my kids are starting to get a bit older now, so I wanted to create something that I needed for my kids and the community at large. Um, now, lockdown had uh, rolled around, and uh, we we lost the premises because um, there yes. there. There were a few landlords who are like, "Don't worry about the rent, you know, just stay afloat." Unfortunately, my landlord wasn't wasn't one of those one of those uh, uh, chaps. Uh, lovely guy, but you know, it was what it was, and um, so lost the business after that. Became a full time solo dad for a couple of years, and then um, about fifteen months ago, I restarted this concept. So what I've got in Timaru is. It's a novelty game and gift shop, and we two months ago we added the commercial kitchen. So it's a cafe, dessert bar, lolly shop, game and gift shop where people can come and and play board games, whether that's Dungeons and Dragons, Risk, Monopoly, Settlers of Catan. Just getting people around a table, because you know you think back, what well, what is one of the big differences between society today and society, you know, a couple of decades ago is there's a lack of the kitchen table where people yes. get together and just talk and connect around a table. And that's what I've tried to create in Timaru is this community where people just get around a table, they play their board games, and the, the end result of that I've found absolutely phenomenal. Like you take a group of people that would all come together on one night, didn't know each other, and then six weeks later, that is their new friend group. Isn't that why like, good for you? And and you and won't have booze in there. No. No, it's it's one of those things where I have I've seen the devastation that alcohol causes. Now I occasionally have a drink myself, but very, very rarely. But it's you see, it's escapism. And it's what kind of escapism do you want? Now, alcohol has been used as it's an escape for you know thousands of years. But the idea of if you're going, if you want to escape reality, isn't it better to escape reality playing a game with a group of people than just getting on the pass? Well, how and wonderful! 
So that oh, that's wonderful. that's kind of what I've done there, and it's it's absolutely brilliant. And the community that's grown out of that, and the connections that have grown out of that, is absolutely brilliant. And it's not and it's not just kids. Like this is the thing is probably my main demographic is young men between twenty and forty is my main demographic. Wow, and it's. Just lads don't know how to make friends. They don't know how to connect with people. And the fact that I've gone here, look, you can play, you can play this game at this table and connect with all these other lads. That is my main demographic between you know eighteen to forty year old men. And yeah, the connections and the friendships that have built out of that is absolutely phenomenal. I haven't seen anything like it because this is the. I think one of the other things is. My generation, you, you, you see, older generations had, you know, they, they had the churches, they had the associations, they had the Rotary, the Lions, the Lodges, whatever it was. My generation doesn't have that. And this is where I'm seeing the connections form around this idea of just playing board games on a table is that these connections, you know, being created is, is the coolest thing in the world to watch, especially because it's not like the demographics that mix in my shop aren't the demographics that normally mix. You'll have the guy, you know, with, you know, he's on the sickness benefit because, you know, he's got major health issues sitting right next to, you know, the accountant or the architect, you know, bringing home 120K a year and they're fighting trolls and orcs and dragons together. And those class lines just evaporate. Why? Because they are fighting this whatever together and it is the coolest thing in the world. And you don't have like, it's not like, on their phones, they're actually no. connecting it's, physically. Yes, and um, and this is one of the reasons why I added the uh, the cafe side of it because you know you've got these guys sitting around a table for you know three four hours each night. Um, I'm just saying, I'm like, well, they go away for food and they bring their food back. Why don't I start creating food? And you know that's why we opened up the cafe side of it. Um, and yeah, it's just it's growing real. It's growing really, really well, and it's, and yeah, it's think, a lot of fun. Do you think it'll be commercially successful for you? Um, we're growing probably about eighteen percent a month. Goodness, well done, Solomon. <clears throat> well done. Uh, Cheers, you're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Solomon Torkilson, and now we get to the heart of the topic. We've sort of done the throat clearing and got to know each other, and we're going to talk about why the South Island should declare itself independent from the rest of New Zealand, so North Island. And in your proposal, which I enjoyed reading immensely, Solomon, we had also nabbed the Chatham Islands. Good thinking. Of course. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll offer give them, them a choice. The best deal we can. We'll, yeah, offer we'll, them, give, we'll, 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 we'll give them a good deal. We'll give them a good deal. And we'd get down to the real thing. But tell me, how did this idea of, for you, occur to you that the South Island should be separate? And Following that, what do you think is the main advantage of separation? So Southern independence is something that I grew up hearing about. 
So, you know, whenever there was a barbecue or, you know, people getting together. Um, so before we were in Timaru, like I grew up in Burke's Pass and, you know, you, you'd have all the farmers and all this other carry on. And whenever there was a barbecue, there was always, you know, someone's drunk uncle talking about, you know, cut the cable and, you know, you know, Wellington can sod off. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly old idea. The idea of Southern independence has existed prior to New Ze- the New Zealand state even being being a thing. Um, so, you know, there, there's over 170 years of South Island independence ideals in the South Island. Um, now, when I got to, you know, 1718, um, I went looking for the South Island independence movement. You know, I'd heard ideas and I'd heard all, of all these groups in the past, and so I went looking for them. Um, and... I couldn't find any of them. So I, I went and I, I started a wee Facebook group because I'm like, well, I'm looking for all these people wanting Southern independence. So I'm going to start this Facebook group. I'm going to start this Facebook page and, you know, maybe I'll be able to connect with other people that way. Um, and then it just grew. Um, it's It went from, you know, you know, a couple of dozen members, a couple of dozen likes on the Facebook page to suddenly there are a few hundred and then a couple of thousand. And then we um, we got interviewed by, was it Seven Sharp or one of, the, one of those other other programs when the Facebook page got to about a thousand likes. And then it just snowballed from there. Um, and then, uh, you know, three, four years ago, you know, when COVID hit and all this other carry on, um, it just exploded, absolutely exploded, especially when the South Island was COVID-free for such a long time. And, we're, you know, we're all down south and, you know, we're still, you know, with all these lockdown restrictions, it's like there is no COVID here. Like, what? Well, no, why? Wasn't crazy. Wasn't that oh, it crazy? Was absolutely, um, it was absolutely phenomenal. And it's almost like whenever the North Island and Wellington screws up and no, at the more they screw up, the greater the movement becomes. So realistically, it really just started as me going, is there anybody else out there? Well, like, where, where, where is all this uh, Southern independence stuff? Um, so that that's realistically how it started. And that's, um, I started that in 2013 2014 is when i first started it so it's coming up it's coming up 10 years now since we've had the facebook page um and for the first six years it was all just you know conversation and news articles and stuff like that and then um probably 2018 2018 2019 i started working on the book, the our, our Southern Isle book, um, and that was it. Took me about a year to write it, and that was, t- you know, the six years prior. All the arguments, all the conversations, all the obscure pieces of information that I've dug up, dug up, and found, and I just wanted to combine it all in a single text because nobody else had done that. For all the talk of Southern independence, nobody had actually got together all the arguments, had got together all the numbers, and actually, you know, figured it out, and nobody had presented it 
the argument in a singular form before, and that's what I that's what I wanted to do. Now, don't get me wrong; I put a few of my own ideas. I'm like, you know, the, you know, it could work this way or that way, but you know, I'm no expert. This is just, you know, my, you know, 27, 28 year old self going, yeah, this is what I think. What do I know? But you know, here you go. Um, and I think since then, you know, the the Facebook page grew from, you know. 10 15,000 and now we're up to you know 39,000 followers which wow. is bigger which is bigger than some of the legacy establishment parties yeah um and it's for the most part it's just been myself going here this is what i think um and it's yeah the fact that you know some 32 year old in Timaru with a lolly shop can have set up a Facebook page that is a greater following than, you know, New Zealand, New Zealand first. It's just like, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> now tell me what would be the advantage to the South Island of liberating itself from the North? So one of the key issues, and this is one of the things I've done through the whole line, is I, I've steered away from, I've tried to steer away from hot topics. Now, of course, you you start an independence movement, you know, left, right, centre, everybody's going to try and jump on it and go, here, we, we want to build our utopia over here. And I, I've tried to steer clear of that for the most part, and I've tried to keep it socially and economically based. So one of the key things is the fact of the South Island from the data that I've been able to find has been tax positive for, you know, it's for the most part of its entire existence. And what that means is the South Island pays more tax into the national coffers than Wellington ever spends in taxpayer money in the South Island for the South Island requirements. So, we we pay more tax than we actually get back in goods and services from central government. Um, if the North Island or Wellington, you know, disappeared tomorrow, you know, every South Island worker could get a tax break, that kind of thing. Um, in addition to that is the amount of rules and legislation and restrictions on southern businesses, southern farmers and southern industries is absolutely phenomenal. And a lot of that comes from, you know, Wellington and the Coromandel voters where they're like, we want everything to be nice and clean and green. And, you know, say South Islanders care about the environment. South Islanders yes. care a lot about our environment. They live in and, it. Oh, it's it's absolute paradise, mate. So, you yeah. know, you don't, you know, you don't shit in your own backyard. And like this yeah. is a key thing. And then to get lectured by, you know, a bunch of greenies on how we should be, you know, looking after the South Island. It's kind of like we do look after the South Island. Um, but, you're you know, beginning farm- to, you're beginning to weave your spell. I'm beginning to get excited. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the other thing, mate, is it makes sense. For the most, it's, and this is kind of where I've always tried to keep it very pragmatic, is the fact of it's not... North Islanders versus South Islanders, it's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not personal. It's purely the fact that the South Island has so much going for it and we're not allowed to actually do things the way they, we could do them. You, you look at how government, the government restrictions on farming 
goes. You say, you know, a couple of generations ago, farmers looked after their farms and operated their farms in such a way where they took the best care of them they could because they knew they were passing their farm on to the next generation. Whereas the the rules and legislation now is make your money while you can because, you know, there's, there's, you, there's no point in putting it forward to the next generation. And, you know, farmers are under the heel of that and it, it's just it doesn't make sense. Um, but you also look at it and well, I've done a couple of tours around the South Island um, giving talks. And my last one over to the West Coast, I was um, going down one of the West Coast highways and I go around this corner, around this hill, and there's coal falling out of the hill naturally onto the main road. And South Island coal is very, very clean, burns incredibly hot, and is the, you know, some of the least damaging um, environmental, you know, coal to burn. It's so efficient and so burns so hot and so efficiently and so clean. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. But you as a local, if you, you know, get caught out, you know, bringing a, you know, a shovel and a, you know, a bag and a pickaxe to that corner to grab yourself some good West Coast coal, you're going to get fined. But you make a lot of sense because what you're saying is there's this culture of government which is all about telling everyone what to do and what's best for them. The culture of government is overwhelmingly dominated by Auckland and Wellington, and you can add in the Coromandel for the beach house, but it's disconnected from Possibly. the productive sector, that is to say farming and resource extraction. Yes. And um, the rules and regulations get made by these people, the bureaucrats and the politicians, who have no clue what it is to be living in an Ungahua Junction, Tuatapere, Timaru, and why you need a gun, yeah. why you need to be cutting that tree down, why yeah. you need that coal. They have no clue why that drainage needs to be put in. And what you're saying is if we separate it, the productive part, the resource extraction part, let's say that rather than productive. I don't want to be pejorative of non-productive. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I do. Um, it's culturally at odds, isn't it? And oh, you, see it all, you see it all the time on a work site where people have to go through this performative stuff of safety rules and regulations because they're working for a big company and it's got to follow all the rules and regulations because the directors are liable. And everyone's looking at it like it's an insanity because they know how to keep themselves safe. Well, this is the thing, mate, is workers, well, of course, workers are going to keep themselves safe. They've got kids, yeah. you know, misses and the rest to go home to. Um, and it's absolutely stupid. And I mean, I honestly, I, I reckon half these politicians that put, you know, shove all this, you know, all these register, you know, all these rules and regulations through. I doubt any of them have even seen a piece of coal in, you know, in the flesh. Yeah. Half of them. Um, and you, you look in comparison, like, you know, we still use a lot of coal in New Zealand, yes. but guess where we get it from? We get it from Indonesia. 
which and is and a second rate coal. Filthy. It's absolutely filthy coal, you know, and that's that's the environmentally bad coal, but we're not allowed to touch the pristine coal that we've got. Oil and gas in the South Island that's extracted from the various wells around the South Island is some of the cleanest, hottest, you know, oil and gas in the world. It's some of the best stuff in the world, but we're not allowed to touch it. Um, there's something like, um, I think there's over 100 you know, over 110 wells around the South Island, oil and gas wells around the South Island, and we're not allowed to extract any of it. You know, there, there's, there was plans for, you know, um, up Murchison. There was a plan to set up a refinery up around there because of all the top-level oil and gas around there. Um, and this is the thing. is It's not required to go out to sea. There's so many hot spots around the South Island where you can get oil and gas from. You don't even have to get your feet wet, mate. Mm, and no. we're not allowed to touch it. And now, tell what? me, tell me, um, I imagine that this methane emissions on farmers could be a huge break point. Oh, mate. It's, uh, <laughs> you want to meet some pissed off people? <laughs> Yeah, they can't farm. No, they can't. New Zealand produces enough food to feed 40 million people, but we're being told we're not allowed to farm, we're not allowed to our animals, we're not allowed to do all this other carry-on. Um, and it's just, it's imbecilic. It's imbecilic. Like, oh, it's, and it's it's absolutely ludicrous. But that will be, that could be, that could be a big push for your movement, because at the moment, farmers in the South Island are trying to argue with Wellington to yeah. sort of lift their boot off their neck somewhat, but to still keep it on their neck. Yeah, and, and what I, you're and, suggesting is get the boot off the neck. And that's exactly it, mate, is the fact of, you know, it's not that people in the I feel South sorry for the farmers in the North Island now. Oh, it's well. I mean, we're going to need some good farmer. We, we'll need some more good farmers down here. So, <laughs> if you want to relocate, now, ordinarily, an independence movement, it seems to me, has a cultural difference. You know, like Wales and Scotland, different languages, yep. don't speak English historically. Uh, different, different tribal origins, um, different observable culture but when you look at the south island and the north island if you took away the madness of government and there's been a lot of movement between the north and south we're pretty much the same people oh to a point like this is one of the things like we i've i know a few people that have moved um from up north down to the south island and one of the things i'll say is it's a lot slower pace people are a lot, uh, are a lot friendlier there's spades a spade and nobody cares about all the pc bullshit um and it's i tend to think that people in the south island tend to be a bit more genuine um, like there's a lot less going on. There's a lot less mining of your P's and Q's and all this other carry on. We're not scared of this, that, or the next. And, you know, if you don't have to second guess where you are with people because people will, you know, if somebody doesn't like you, they're going to tell you at the same time. You know, now, one thing like I you. have to do, Solomon, oh. 
I have to ad- I have to admonish you because we're in people's homes, so we we drop the swear words. You wouldn't swear like that around your nana, so none no, of this. Sorry, mate. No, no, no. It's not apologizing to me. It's because you and I at one level are talking and we're two men of the South, as it were. And we're talking, it's understandable. But we just got to realize that we're also in lovely ladies' houses, gentlemen's houses, and we're invited in. So we respect that. And so it's easy to forget, by the way. Um, So no disrespect to your argument, though. And I know sometimes when you're in the south and you're talking to another bloke yeah add a bit of emphasis but you're saying that culturally there has become a difference i think there i I definitely think there is a difference between the north and south from a cultural perspective um i think there's i think there's the political I definitely think there's a lot more social um, social justice, um, political correctness that is intrinsic in the North Island. And I don't know if that's because there's a lot more universities up in the North Island. Oh, guaranteed. Um, oh, yeah. And it's, <laughs> I think there's there's a lot more cultural activism in the North Island versus the South Island. Mm. And I think there are a lot more because, you know, it's you. You look at the uh, the fact of the North Island is warmer. It is more. It's a more tepid environment. It's a lot easier to survive in the North Island. If you, if example being in in the South Island, if you, you know you lock yourself out of your your house or you know you, you end up sleeping in the car or whatever, it's in the South Island that that's that's rough. In the North yeah. Island, not necessarily potentially as much. So I think due to the fact that there's so many more. No, New Zealand's uh, population has grown a lot in the last few years. There's a lot of people from around the world that have come to make New Zealand their home. And when you get that many people moving to the country, they're going to move to the most comfortable parts of the country they can. So I do think there is an aspect of, you know, a lot of your Americans, your Brits, uh, people from Europe, Asia, et cetera, they've all moved, a lot of them moved to the North Island because that's where it's comfortable. And then when you've got so many different groups all in the North Island, there's, I think there's a tension there that has probably got worse over the last couple of decades, which I don't think you see quite as much in the South. No, I certainly notice that if you go from Timaru or Arrowtown and head mm. to Auckland, you get a shock. At oh, the mo- it's, mul- it's quite at, profound. At the melting pot. And you don't necessarily feel as though, you feel as though you've gone to another place, not to a different town. Correct. Well, I've gone to, uh, you know, I've spent a bit of time in Wellington and Auckland, and it's it's quite jarring Yes. Honestly. Um, and again, I don't know if it's for the fact of it's just there's so many more people, because that is one of the things that is uh, quite characteristic of the South Islanders. And everybody in the South Island loves it. There's nobody here, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Timaru. Like Timaru has always been, I grew up in Rangura, just north of Christchurch, and Timaru has always been a favorite place because it's, it's just got that beautiful port. 
and oh, that beautiful ocean. And you could be up on the hills looking out, um, and it's got all the amenities, and it's even it got a games shop uh, now where you can go and play board games. So it's got everything. And it's, I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm sitting up on my uh, window set, and I'm looking at the ocean over here, and I'm looking at the, you know, the mountains over there. Like it's, you can't get better than it, mate. It's, no. it's absolutely phenomenal. So um, what is the, do you know technically, um, what is the process for... I keep I one of the things I read a lot about is the Civil War, American Civil War, and um, because it was such an enormous tragedy, yes, and such an enormous death and destruction, and of course it's a history that is still argued about, and even the causes and the reasons why, and of course. Um, it's similar to the argument, in my view, to what you're discussing, because the North South was paying 80% of the tax yep. and receiving 20% of the benefits. It was an economic argument because they were wanting to tax the South to fund and subsidize manufacturing in the North. And slavery yep. came later in the war as a, a weapon to use yes. against the South, in my understanding. Happy to be corrected on that, but I have read as much as I can. Yeah. But they had it in their constitution. And of course, this was the, this was the Southerners' point that their constitution was that the states came together as an agreement and the states could leave if they chose to. And so the Southern states, after many, many years of debate and argument, said, well, we're, you know, very sorry, but this tax has got to honour us and we're yeah. going to leave. And they got crushed. Not just crushed, it was, they got devastated by the North. Yeah. Now, they had a, a process established in their constitution to leave and still couldn't. So how does the South Island What's the process by which the South Island decides uh, we're going to govern ourselves? So I think one of the advantages the South Island has is the fact that uh, we've, you, there's uh, I do I'm not religious myself, but I do like the the argument of you know God's already set up the South Island's borders himself by making us an island. Um, so I, you know I've heard that you know tongue in cheek comment, but it's uh, it's one of those things where. Sorry, there we go. Um, so it's the process that we would look through it is the fact of because New Zealand is still part of the Commonwealth, there is precedent law for regions within the Commonwealth that are still under the Crown going through the process of becoming independent. Mm. So that these processes have happened in what was the British Empire in the past, and because we still have, you know, the the crown, the the monarch and the crown as our um, head of state, there, if you can present to the crown via the Governor General or directly to the crown themselves that fifty one percent of the population wants independence, 
then the argument is there for us to have independence. And that is, yeah, it's one of those things where I don't see there any need for any form of conflict for the South Island to become independent because this has happened before in the British Empire where regions go, look, as a region, democratically, the majority of us want independence from the other side your majesty can we 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 petition you to allow us to do this um so it actually doesn't have anything to uh, if the south island wants to become independent from the north it actually has nothing to do with wellington it actually has to do with the reigning monarch at the time My and goodness. we so well i might send a birthday card to king charles or something yeah yeah with, a, with a little yeah yeah consider you know could we do this um now, it is one of those things where, as, you know, subjects of the crown, you know, we, we can write to the, the reigning monarch and, you know, we can request information or, you know, e- even request to have a conversation with them in that regard. Now, that's not something that we'd do until we had actually got to the point of having a South Island-based referendum on that point, but... The processes are there. In Crown law, those processes do exist. Well, that's great news. Now, tell me, I've never thought about all of this. This is all news to me, Solomon. So if we, by the way, I'm talking to Solomon Torkelson, and we're discussing independence for the South Island, and we've just covered, well, we've covered off the logic for it, um, and we're talking about, the process, and now I'm talking about how it would look. So would would the South Island establish its own parliament and government for itself? Is that how you'd see it? That Yes, that is how I, I would see it. So one of the things that we're working on in the South Island independence movement at the minute is, so where there's 24 districts in the South Island, there's seven regions in the South Island. So one of the things that we're currently working on putting together is a citizens assembly or citizens parliament with a representative from each district and each region to meet together on a yearly basis to start the process of, um, you know, kind of like uh, not in a clandestine, you know, uh, sense, but a shadow parliament in a, as far as setting up the structural mechanisms that would eventually evolve to become a South Island parliament. Got it. And um, we would we would be, there'd be no political administration of the South Island from the North. Correct. It's it's one of those things where you said... Do you know what I love about it? Do you know what I love about it? It would take about 200 years for politicians to wreck the South Island again. You know what I mean? Because you'd start off, you'd start off with very few roles and you'd have this incredible period of wealth and then over time, what seems to happen is the political class become, you know, you'd have start off with citizens who are doing it for the right reasons. And then over time, government would transmogrify into this monstrosity of bureaucrats and political careerists. But you'd have 
a couple of hundred years for that to morph into that. So you'd actually have a breathing space of decades and decades because you couldn't produce all the rules that no. our current government has got. You start off with, you'd start, wouldn't it be amazing to start off and you say, okay, we need to write some rules for the South Island. If you could come up with 10, you'd be doing well. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, mate, is the fact of it's a chance to start fresh. Yeah. It is actually a chance to start fresh because this is the problem that we have in the current political system because I know a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, we need to change the system from within. And I, I know very few people that have, you know, survived that process themselves. Oh, you're looking at um, one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's one of those things where why try to – there's a phrase that I came across a while ago called, uh, that said, sometimes it's easier to give birth than it is to raise the dead. And we live in such a corrupt system. Why try and uncorrupt it when, you know, there's so much, there are so many people that have such a invested interest in how the status quo is. Why try to change any of that when we can just go, nah, we're just going to start fresh, start again, as we the people want it to be. And this is one of the advantages we have of our age is the fact of at no point have we had, has the average person had so much free access to information yes. when we, we can actually look at every country in the world, we can look throughout history and go, what worked, what didn't work and actually bring the best of everything into forming this new country that would be an independent South. And we, we, you know, we get to go through that process and have those conversations. You know, what what was the best of, you know, Scandinavia's model? What was the best Swedish model? What were the yeah. best and worst from the UK, America, wherever else? And we actually get to go, cool, how do we fashion something that could last the test of time but certainly in the, you know, like you said, certainly for the first 200 years or so, you know, we could actually make it good for our children and our children's children. Yeah. What would this new country be called? <laughs> that is a hot topic. Because <laughs> it had um, a name. It had a name pre-government. Was it New Munster? Was that the South North Island? What was, wasn't there something called New Munster? Yes, so the South Island um, was originally called New Munster, and there, there's certainly the advocates for New Munster. I've heard New Munster, um, South Zealand. Um, yeah, there's the Maori name that I keep. I can't. I keep. I trip over my tongue every time I try to pronounce it. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, I've heard of a lot, I even heard of Mainlandia because, you know, we're the mainland and all this other carry on. Um, so me, myself, and this is just my own personal, um, I've taken the, so New Zealand is on top of the eighth largest continent in the world. And, you know, New Zealand is, and it's 90% submerged, and the top ridges of it are, you know, the North Island, the South Island, New Caledonia. And that continent is called Zealandia. And it's actually split into North Zealandia and South Zealandia. And so that, and I've, I've named my shop in town South Zealandia. So, you know, there, there might be a hint for what I think it could That's be called. One. But um, South Zealandia, I like it. 
Yeah, and that's and like I've set up my shop with that name because it also sounds cool. Like you, you think about you know Persia or Babylon or, or Babylon or you know uh, you know Britannia or you know all these other things. And it's got there's there's a there's, a, there's something about you know Zealandia or South Zealandia that just sounds cool. Yeah, um, and. Like, and we'd have to come up. We'd have to get John Key involved in coming up with this. Oh no, we can't. He's a North Islander. He was born in. He was born in the South Island. He might. He look. He'll be desperate to come down here because there'll be no tax. Um, but he could come up with the flag, right? Process to get. What are we going to call it? South Zealandia. He could come up with the flag for South Zealandia, and we could vote on that. And um, we'd probably have to build. <laughs> We'd have to have strong immigration, I think, because imagine how many North Islanders would want to rush back here. Honestly, mate, it's probably the coolest thing I get, the coolest messages I get are from so many expats who are like, if the South Island comes independent, I'm coming home. I have no reason to come home right now, but if the South Island were to become independent, we'd move home. Um, And I think it's one of those things for all the people that are not... You know, for all the people that value freedom, for all the people that value freedom of speech, um, the right to just, you know, be left alone and to get on with life, I think there's a lot of people up north that would probably come down who want to come down for the South Island yeah. because well, of the we'd be checking them out. We'd be checking them out. Uh, well, um, I mean, being able to, yeah, absolutely, mate. Well, I mean, if, if you're going to come to the South Island, you've got to come willing to, you know, put the overalls on and get some work done and actually help us build this country. Um, South Zealandia, because it's got a lot of work ahead of it. We've got a lot of coal to extract. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> now, cut to a very important thing, probably the most pressing, outstanding thing. How would we manage the Rugby World Cup? <laughs> oh. Uh, I I I reckon I reckon you know we'd we'd figure it out. I think well, we'd figure it out. I was thinking that like <clears throat> the UK manages to grab people from Wales and Scotland, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right. We'll we'll just get all the good ones from up north, and <laughs> yeah. Or we could just have the South Zealandia team, and we'd be so rich that we'd. We would buy the best rugby players from the North Island. I, I don't think it'd be hard to do, mate. I don't no, think it'd be hard. I don't to think do. it'd be hard to do. That would be really cool. Oh, it, it would. And again, it's a bit like the you know Stewart Island and the Chatham Islands and all this, uh, all this. Yeah, you know, we'll just offer them a better deal. Yeah, because we can, <laughs> because we're rich. Well, this is the thing, mate, is the the material and mineral wealth in the South Island. People actually have no idea how materially wealthy the South Island is. Um, you, I mean, you, just the gold, you look at the gold, you look at the oil, you look at the coal, you look at the iron sands. The South Island is incredibly mineral, mm. is incredible mineral wealth that we're just not allowed to touch. Um you know, you walk through the West Coast uh, on the wrong track and the wrong part, and you pick up a piece of gold off the hill, which does happen. You know, if you you don't have a license, you get fined for that. Yes. Um, I remember and, my friend, my friend and colleague, and 
now an RCR, Don Nicholson, when he was mm. president of the Federated Farmers, and he was a sheep farmer in the Deep South. And I remember him calculating how many sheep he had to have a year to fund one civil servant. And it was a lot, right? Oh, and yeah. When, when you look, when you go around the South Island and you see a farmer with this huge acreage, mm. they have to have now to be economic. Absolutely. And the responsibility and the effort and the risk. And there they are producing, funneled up to people who are writing rules and regulations only, that is to say, doing nothing productive, and then sitting around debating them and discussing them, and worse, implementing them. The farmers funding that. And then these rules and regulations get funneled back to the farmer to make his day and the farmer. I mean, when I say farmer, I'm not meaning because these days wives on farms work have to oh, work. Oh, God, yes. Those rules and regulations turn up not to make their day easier, but to make it harder and ultimately impossible. Well, that and this is exactly it, mate, is trying to be a farmer in New Zealand is um, it's the government is actually making it impossible for people to survive working the jobs they love doing. And, and maybe, and maybe that's ultimately the plea you would make to King Charles. Well, I, I mean, yeah, absolutely, mate. I, I, well, I mean, even in addition to that, mate, I he, I will, think... he will. Oh, I know. He'll remember King George the Third because <laughs> when, when King George the Third got the note saying, you know, it's getting a bit onerous for us people in the colonies what we're having to pay in tax to fund your wars is getting a bit sickening and they ignored it. Well, things happen. And I mean, the thing is the tax on the American colonies was a pittance. Well, I mean, it was what? 3% less than 3%. Yeah. Oh, we're, here, we're, we're paying a bit more than that, mate. And here we are. You could just say, look, we are unable to provide for our families. Under this onerous rules, well, and this is it exactly, mate. Is the fact of it's oh, hundred percent. It's it's the fact that New Zealand produces enough food to feed forty million people. Yet I know people that are having to skip meals so their kids can eat, and that's becoming a a story I'm hearing all too often. Intimerate. The fact of we've got so much space and nobody can afford to get into a house. Oh, Timaru, Christchurch, Dunedin, all yeah. over the place. It's, um, it's I can't believe it. I can't believe it that here in Queenstown, we have people working, Kiwis working, mm -hmm. tradesmen working, and sleeping in a car at night. Yeah, in winter. Oh, and they're having to mate. do that. They're having to do that simply because of the rules and regulations. Because you could knock up a house in a month to provide for them. 
Oh, you could. It'd be all too easy. Um, I, I, and I reckon it's one of those things where in an independent South Island, I think it's I think a good rule to have in place is if you want to be a minister of any particular field, you actually have to have worked in that field for a couple of years in your life before yeah. you can like have that portfolio. Like I've, I've got one policy. Yeah, go no, on. Po- no politician gets paid. Well, this is the thing is, you know, being a politician used to be a voluntary role. That's right. You, you did it because you loved the country, not because you wanted right. to line your own pockets. And, and that you had been successful. Correct. Like This is the thing. When the country used to have politicians who becoming a politician was their uh, how they gave back to the country in their mm. retirement, mm. our country actually did okay. Right. Well, there you go. Well, there's much to digest. I tell you, I had never thought about it. I had heard the discussion, like you, all through my boyhood, and I always thought, you know, yeah, cut the cable, whatever. It's very excellent, Solomon, that you have given it the thought, that you're putting an organisation around it, that you're prepared to have a debate. I must say you're a very articulate proponent of it and uh, very well-reasoned. I'm going to go away and have a think, and more power to you. Now, for those people in the North Island, in the South Island, and overseas listening in, how do they find your organization or your Facebook page? So if you go onto Facebook and you look up uh, South Island Independence Movement, you'll find us on there. or if uh, the discussion group we have um, set up is called um, SIIM Discussion Group, so Southern Island Independence Movement Discussion Group, or people can get a hold of me via email at secretary.siim at gmail.com. And, yeah, if anybody's wanting additional information or to have a yarn, feel free to get in touch. Well, Solomon, thank you. Thank you for being a wonderful, productive person. So interesting to talk to. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. What a great guy. We're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text about the South Island Independence Movement 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. I enjoyed that. I was listening in. I I started off being extremely skeptical mainly thinking about our sports teams, funnily enough, you know, the important things. But when you think about how do you how do you get government back on track? How do you get back to basics? Well, maybe you have to start again, and maybe this is a mechanism because, you know, people are really suffering. And it's not that we don't have the ability to build houses. It's not that we don't have the know-how to provide for our families. It's that we literally can't. And we can't, not for physical reasons, but for political reasons, where every which way you turn, you're being smacked on. So maybe this is a circuit breaker. Might wake up the North Island too, even the fact that we have a movement. Thank you for listening. Uh, Hey, aren't we blessed to have such amazing people in New Zealand? And here's a surprising thing. I'd never heard of uh, Solomon. And 
he's a great guy. He's got great ideas. You would normally think that, you know, when you look at a newspaper or turn on the radio or turn on TV, you'd actually hear these different ideas and different debates, but you don't. You've got to come to Reality Check Radio because all the legacy media just run the legacy stories. Thanks for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Mailbag, my favorite time I get to hear back from listeners. I love it. Remember, you can text me 2057, email me inbox at radio, And remember, you're listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Radley Check Radio. And also uh, appreciate this. It's not our intention to foster a narrative, to say, this is the way this station sees things it's not my style i do have principles and values that i support and will argue for and articulate but always open and i think the most important thing is that we have a platform that can debate and discuss we've seen what happens to our media when they subscribe to a narrative they exclude people boy do they become boring and so we had the debate with Dane, and as expected, uh, we got a lot of pushback and a lot of feedback. Thank you for that. Uh, let me begin. Oh, this is from David. Hello, Rodney. I like your interviews. You have a way of elevating your interviewees and diminishing yourself, but you're actually very skilled at what you do. Well, thank you, David. That's very kind. I've been thinking about that, and I think it's just I like listening. And... When you listen, you have questions. That's all. However, your support for Israel could be tempered with a dose of reality. Fair enough. While the Palestinian attack can in no way be tolerated, agreed, I hear you claim the Palestinian soldiers beheaded babies. Hmm, I don't know. This is just more PRBS produced by the Israeli PTB. Much like the Iraqi troops unplugging babies incubators in the first Gulf War since proved to be lies. Well, I do my best to report what is happening. I could be wrong, but I'll say this. I don't think the argument about October the 7th turns on whether babies had their heads beheaded or not. You know what I mean? But I do accept that I know very little. Uh, here we go on with David. Even the Israeli press is calling out their own soldiers. Try reading Haaretz newspaper. And he gives me some links. Isn't it great that the press is pulling out the soldiers? They should be pulled out. Um, that's a great thing about uh, living in a free society. 
soldiers get held to account. I don't think those Hamas attackers were soldiers. It sounds like you're not aware that Israelis helped set up Hamas so they could have a controlled opposition. I went to your link, uh, also the Harrods newspaper, but they wanted me to subscribe, put my name in, I couldn't be bothered. But I got the, I got the essence of it. And it's this idea that in the early days, there were various factions in Gaza and the Israelis helped some faction, which then came on to be Hamas. I can understand that, that um, people play games for advantage in other people's countries, and it often turns out badly. I'll give you an example. I helped start the ACT Party and was involved in a way, a little bit. I never, ever thought I'd see the day (laughs) that the ACT Party would agree with the government locking us all down in our homes and shutting our businesses. I never, ever thought I'd see the ACT Party involved in saying, take this state-sanctioned medication safe and effective, or you'll lose your job. So I can understand Israel being involved in starting something and it going off track. And then, I'm sorry to say, Rodney, this is of Dave, that most people, including you and your guest Dave, believe in history written by the victors. It contains many lies. It's always tough reading history, and I mean, it's even worse when history's happening right in front of you to know what's true and what's not. I guess we helped a little bit by cacophony now of information. But it's extraordinary. One of the things that fascinates me is the American Civil War. And there's some wonderful historians who write about that war, and I believe they're mistaken about its causes. But I'm not an expert, if you know what I mean. And I read a beautiful book. If you want to read a beautiful book about the origins of World War One. there's a beautiful book called The Guns of August, published in the early 60s. In fact, there was a book that John F. Kennedy had just read. I won a Pulitzer Prize. And it informed him about how to handle the Cuban Missile Crisis and probably was in part responsible for stopping World War III, a nuclear, a nuclear war. Because JFK had read this book about how World War I just unfolded very quickly by military brains saying, you have to do this, and he pulled back. So, yes, I know history's tough, and concurrent history, i.e. happening in front of us, very, very tough. Um, and then this, Dave says, I believe that too until recently Yes, when I began reading essays and books supported by official documentation, I went to accounts to the country. Well, good for you, Dave. And I mean that genuinely. And I'd love to hear your arguments. Um, you're most welcome to come on my show. We'll talk talk about this. Drop me an email. None of this is deny the tragedy that is unfolding in the Middle East. It is a tragedy. And elsewhere in the world. Yes. We, 90% of humanity, need to throw off the mask that blinds us all and come together. This has... This has to overcome on a spiritual level. Keep up the good work, sir. Thank you, Dave. I'm happy for you to come on the show if you'd like to and explain it uh, more. Uh, John wrote in uh, several times, Jeepers, Rodney, you need to pull back the veil on this Israel-Palestine issue. You're coming in with an incredible one-dimensional viewpoint. Cringeworthy. Oops. 
First of all, Rothschilds. Next, all the false flag attacks. Do you, excuse me, I'm going to cough. <coughs> this is my hay fever or something. Do you actually know how IDF treat Palestinians in Gaza? Well, I imagine sometimes not very well. Do you think Palestinians align with Hamas or in the main, they voted them in originally because then they suspended elections. Do you know how Israel's involvement in creating Hamas? Yep, I got told that. Come on, mate, get past all the biblical interpretations and dig more. Funnily enough, I wasn't relying on that, but I accept your point. Decapitation babies, that's been disproven on so many levels. Conflating pro-Palestine with the rabid left, absurd. Oh, that could be. All I just know is like since the time I was at university, um, a pro-Palestinian, I remember at the University of Canterbury when I was here in the mid-70s, was always, the student left were always pushing pro-Palestine. So um, I do conflate them, but I understand that's not a necessity. Rodney, he comes again. This is John. What the heck? Pro-Palestine equates to anti-Semite. Well, you can be pro-Palestinian and not anti-Semite, but I don't think you'd be pro-Hamas. And you have to be careful because when you start shouting from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free, which we have MPs doing in our parliament. You're calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. And I'm not sure what happens to the Jewish people then who live in Israel. Are you? What in the world? Way off the mark. You keep reiterating the disproven beheaded babies claims. It's funny that beheaded, beheaded babies one keeps coming up. Here's a website dedicated to capturing IDF testimonials regarding the atrocities they committed. And, and the web page is breakingthesilence.org.il backslash testimonials, backslash database. I'm sorry, I haven't yet hooked onto it. And then we have Hamas. He says, thank you, Rodney and Dane. Great interview. My question is, if the closest shooter can be labelled a terrorist, why not Hamas? Yeah, I agree. Hi, great conversation this morning. Thanks to Dane for his input. Fantastic. Uh, and then Paul, we've got several emails from Paul. Uh, respect to Dane for admitting your mistake. I think your views and Rodney's are very one-sided. I think they are too. I'm very much on the side of Israel, but I'm open to this debate and discussion. So I'm just laying it on the table. I'm 100% Israel. Uh, not like in a rugby team, but in the sense of supporting freedom and individualism and reason and democracy, important things, Western values. They exist in Israel around the perimeter of Israel, not so much. Uh, because of a lifetime of the victors' right, the history doct indoctrination. However, that is entirely understandable in our education media systems, where truth is so often a casualty of hidden agendas. I hope that one day all thinking people make a genuine attempt to truly investigate the contentious issues that blinker us and divide us for the sake of all people. Only then can genuine peace come to our world. Come on, guys, people get jailed for Holocaust denial in many countries to shut down and remove the debate. Yes, I, I, I know they do, and they shouldn't. Why do you think it is? It is because the truth will come out and clearly disprove the mainstream view. Think about it, please. I definitely think it shouldn't be against the law to deny the Holocaust. 
And I think you do create the theory there's something to hide. So I'm not a Holocaust denier myself, and but I wouldn't want someone shut down for saying it didn't happen and explaining why they think that. Why do you think David Irvine became a Holocaust denier, one of the foremost historians of World War II? It is purely because that's where the actual evidence led him and is in a carriage, spurred him on to out this horrendous misrepresenting of him. This is part of the reason anti-Semitism is rising, because the truth is leaking out. Please have the courage to open your mind to this. The truth will set you free. I should read David Irving's uh, book by, by David Irving. Um, I was very upset when he was prevented from coming to New Zealand um, because I think you create this precise kickback, much needed to have the ideas out in the open and discussed and debated. And I don't know what David Irvine was saying, whether he was saying the six million was a bit high or whether he was saying it never happened. I think I'd be stretching incredulity to suggest it never happened. Oh, my goodness. Uh, this one from Dan. Hi, Rodney. Have you heard of atrocity propaganda? Yes. It's a bit like Labour's jad propaganda. Yes, but actually leads to genocide and when ignorant idiots like yourself and your guest reveal your warmongering ideals like the other Western leaders, this leads to actual atrocities. A country with 50 billion per year in support for America and the best intelligence agency in the world. Well, okay. Verify the baby beheading story. Oh, we've got that again. This has been proven to be false, retracted by the journal journalist reporting it. Hamas was created by Israel and verified by an American senator in a speech. Have the evidence of speech. This is a fanatical religious war. Netanyahu has been quoting Bible scriptures of complete no mercy to all, including women and children. You are supporting war crimes happening currently. The bombing and slaughter of innocent people happening day and, and night in a heavily controlled walled area 45 square miles. The people have been shut off from food, water, electricity. A brutal regime and persecution by Israel for 75 years. So disappointed. Well, that's not my understanding, uh, Dan. But again, I'm happy to drop me a line. Come on the show. I'd love to talk about it. Not, not to argue. Not to see, you know, not to say I'm right and you're wrong and um, abuse you in any way. I want to hear the argument and have a proper discussion. But my understanding, for what it's worth, is oh, all this has been contentious, but that Israel pulled out of the Gaza and in 2005 gave them autonomy. And this is what's happened. And Arab people live in Israel happily. And indeed, Palestinians, Gazians come to work there happily, drive you around, taxi, serve you. But it's their stated mission and their charter, and not just them, other states too to destroy Israel, and indeed to kill Jews. It's pretty chilling. But like I said, that's why I think like I think. That's my understanding. I try and do my best, and I'd be happy, Dan, drop me a line, come on the show, and we'll just have a 
nice talk like this and try better to understand the issues and the arguments. I'm the last person to be shutting anyone down or anything down, particularly after what we've been through in New Zealand these past little while. Thank you for listening. I've actually enjoyed the controversy because it's challenged me and challenged my philosophy on broadcasting and my show. I hope you'll bear with me as sometimes we're talking chickens and gardening. And then every now and then we stray off into a tough topic where I'm no expert, but I try and understand. And I will feel I always feel obligated to say, well, this is what I'm thinking. And then open it up. Thank you for listening. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Remember, send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Oh, <laughs> I've got more in the mailbag. So love the beautiful war humanity expressed just in that interview, refreshing and necessary. I think you should watch Born in Gaza on Netflix, Rodney, for balance. Rodney. When you know the outcome, all that is going on makes sense. Remember who set up Hamas and who has provided them with weapons, just like Netanyahu. Hamas do not care about the people. It's a banker's war. All the same players involved. COVID, gender, Ukraine, Russia, climate, jab, done jab, BLM. See the game for this. Hi there, Rodney. There's a documentary called Europa. It's about the Russian Revolution in World War II. Please take the time to watch it. It's 12 hours. Wow. With lots of documents on the war. Things that were not told to us. Thanks. Rodney Hyde may have just dropped a fab 500 bomb in Darcia. Israel has the greatest propaganda machine at its disposal. And we just witnessed the impact of this in a non-impartial Rodney Hyde, practically sweeping the Palestinians into the irrelevant. Perhaps he should interview Eva Bartlett or Vanessa Bailey or any of the countless others trying to expose the truth of the reality of Palestine, of Syria, or any other country in the crosshairs of those that care not. I'd love to interview them. I'd also actually like to interview um, Chloe Swirbrock or um, Golrez Gamaram from the Green Party and Ricardo Mendez, is it? Because they're the MPs supporting uh, Palestine opposite to me. I'd love them to come on the show. If anyone knows them, drop them a line. So I'd love to have them on. And finally, Sam says, a lovely segue into Heal the World, which is a song, Rodney. Well, that was my lovely producer who does all the work, Bex. Uh, so thank you, Bex, and thank you for that lovely song. And thank you for being with me through these trying times. Of course, nothing for those, nothing like what poor people are going through in Gaza and in Israel and indeed around the world. And our hearts go out to them as we try and understand and keep alive debate and discussion so as not to descend into barbarism and violence, which clearly it's so easy to do. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What a great show we've had. Thank you for having me along. I hope you enjoyed it. We had Clem talking hens. Man, we learned a lot in that little time and actually learned to appreciate hens and appreciate looking after them. 
better than other pets because they lay eggs. And in Clem's case, they get to eat them. Um, I think I could do all that. But, and I really found it interesting. I was skeptical of the idea of uh, South Island independence, but it's, once you start thinking about it and hearing the arguments, it has a certain appeal. I just like the idea of starting off with a clean slate because you couldn't imagine the monstrosity of the government that we've managed to create here in New Zealand, which is just parasitic on the rest of us. And you can imagine a fresh start. In the old days in New Zealand, we had a simple government and people served for the best interest of New Zealand and not just to get re-elected and to look after the bureaucracy and to overlord us. Maybe just starting afresh would be a good thing. There you go. Remember, send me a text 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. It's a great privilege to be on this show and on the station and to be with you. And it's a great privilege to have these wonderful guests. Thank you so much for listening. Talk next week. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.